is six o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, October 24th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, community organizers gather outside the state capitol to protest the Senate bill that would give redistricting power to the legislature. Volunteers help dozens of local veterans prepare for the cold months ahead. The city alder representing Harmony Apartments speaks out after this month's shooting. And in the second half, UW student journalists discuss free speech on campus. A rare bird is spotted in Dane County. And line workers educate lawmakers on city-owned utilities. All these and more on tonight's news. This is Sean Bull and Sarah Hopeful with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The head of the State Department of Natural Resources is stepping down after less than a year on the job. DNR Secretary Adam Payne gave a letter of resignation to Governor Tony Evers Friday, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Payne said he plans to retire and spend time with his family. His last day will be November 1st. Evers appointed Payne to lead the DNR in December 2022, and his work included efforts to address PFAS contamination in drinking water and implementing a new wolf management plan. The governor has yet to name a replacement. Republican state lawmakers want to end race-based financial aid programs at Wisconsin's colleges and universities, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. A new bill from State Representative Nick Redinger and State Senator Eric Wimberger would overhaul several scholarships, grants, and loan programs that target minority students and open them up to all low-income applicants, regardless of race. It would affect financial aid programs that use state money at public, private, and technical schools. The proposal comes on the heels of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that significantly limited the consideration of race in college admissions. However, the ruling didn't directly apply to financial aid programs. A representative for Governor Tony Evers said he would likely veto the measure if it passes. The man charged with bringing loaded guns to the state capitol and seeking the governor has moved out of Wisconsin. Joshua Pleznik was arrested twice on October 4th, first inside the capitol with a handgun near Governor Tony Evers' office, and again that evening after making bail with a semi-automatic rifle outside the building. He has been charged with a misdemeanor for carrying a gun in a public building. But in an interview this week with the Associated Press, Pleznik said he never intended to use the guns and simply wanted to talk to Evers about the issue of men facing domestic violence. Pleznik told the AP he has relocated to Nebraska since the arrests and has no intention of going anywhere near the governor, which would violate the terms of his release. City leaders in Madison say they've had to make tough trade-offs in next year's budget because of state-imposed revenue limits. Members of the Common Council's Finance Committee made several appropriations decisions at a meeting yesterday, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Members voted to prioritize funding for public health services with a focus on infant mortality rates among people of color. But that meant removing proposed spending for other positions and programs. More than $30,000 was cut from a community violence initiative, and a planned tenant's rights advocate position was also scrapped. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway laid blame on legislature-imposed caps on how much cities can raise property taxes, saying it was preventing the community from funding the programs it needs. The total 2024 operating budget adds up to about $405 million. 
The owners of a troubled apartment complex on Madison's east side are being accused of stiffing a construction company for almost $270,000, according to the Capital Times. Court filings show Dave Jones LLC has brought a civil suit against the management company that owns the Meadowlands Apartments, claiming they were never paid for HVAC, plumbing, and fire protection work. Indianapolis-based KCG Development, which owns and operates the apartments, had no comment. Meadowlands, on Milwaukee Avenue, has already been designated by the city as a chronic public nuisance because of frequent disturbances and police calls. That designation was extended in September for another six months. A new section of the Ice Age Trail is open in south-central Wisconsin. The Capital Times reports that hundreds of volunteers helped the Ice Age Trail Alliance construct almost three miles of trail on National Park Service land near Cross Plains. Volunteers from ages 8 to 80 cleared brush and rocks over four days and even helped build boardwalks, according to the paper. The new section is located off of Old Sock Pass Road and officially opened Sunday. And now, on to today's top stories. In a surprise move earlier this fall, state Republican lawmakers introduced a bill that would put redistricting power in the hands of the state legislature. The move preempts a lawsuit headed to the newly liberal state Supreme Court that alleges current voting maps are unconstitutional and need to be thrown out. This afternoon, members of SEIU Wisconsin, leaders with Voces de la Frontera, and local allies gathered inside the Capitol Rotunda to protest the redistricting bill. They say that Wisconsin's independent judiciary and not state legislators should draw voting maps. WRT news producer Faye Parks was in attendance and heard comments from folks on the ground. It's four o'clock in the afternoon on one of the last sunny days in Madison, and a large crowd is gathering inside the state capitol rotunda. They're carrying signs that read, voters decide, children are blowing whistles, and folks are chanting in opposition to Senate Bill 488. The Republican-sponsored bill essentially allows the legislature to draw their own voting maps, rather than wait for the state Supreme Court's ruling on a pending lawsuit. According to PolitiFact, Wisconsin maps are, quote, among the most heavily skewed to one party of any in the country going back more than 40 years, unquote. Most recently, the bill was referred to the Senate Committee on Shared Revenue, Elections, and Consumer Protection. The committee held a public hearing last Thursday where, according to the Wisconsin State Journal, several Democrats and advocates expressed uncertainty that the legislature could fairly draw new maps, seeing as they also drew the current ones. Here's what some folks at the rally have to say. My name's Yuseli Flores. I am the co-chair for the Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition. We're here to make sure our voices are heard against SB 488, which is the redistricting bill that Voss and his team of minions introduced very, very last minute and without public input and without the opinion of all the other members of the legislature. Why are they taking a bill now where we've tried to pass across, you know, both sides of the legislature bills that could also accurately represent communities? And 
they didn't accept it in 2019. They didn't accept any other bills moving forward. And now they just very randomly, sporadically, and very quickly push this bill. The thing we heard the most was, what's the rush? Christine Newman-Ortiz, Executive Director, Voces de la Frontera Action. You know, our members are really proud to be able to join SEIU Wisconsin on this action at the state capitol and with other allied organizations to call out Voss, to expose his uh, sham bill that this is really an effort to try to trick Wisconsin voters into pretending that he uh, supports a fair process for fair maps when for the last 12 years all they've done is, you know, secretly and in a very corrupt way create one of the most undemocratic maps in the country that has held a supermajority one-party control for the last 12 years and in the process really undermined the will of the voters not just you know on a whole host of things that working-class families need in our state and uh, continue to promote bills that you know, undermine voting rights, um, attack immigrant workers. Our members care deeply about the fight for reinstating driver's licenses in Wisconsin for immigrants. And despite having a majority of support by, you know, people actually on a bipartisan basis at a grassroots level at the state legislature, it continues to be really held back. And so we know that if we want to win driver's licenses in Wisconsin, then we know that we need to have fair maps so we can have a chance at electing more representatives of our choice. And as an organization that represents Latinos, which are the largest growing voting bloc in Wisconsin, you know, in all parts of Wisconsin, we know that it's very important if someone wants to run for the school board, you know, if someone wants to run in the city, that they have a fair chance of doing that. And the only way that we can get that is through fair maps. Several organizations have registered their opposition to the bill, including Common Cause Wisconsin, Wisconsin Conservation Voters, Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, and the Wisconsin Farmers Union. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Staying warm this winter is just one less thing to worry about for 69 local veterans, thanks to Heats On. The Madison Area Mechanical and Sheet Metal Contractors Association spearheads the event, which is in its 35th year, and the Steamfitters Local 601 Union organized volunteers from nine different contractors. Last Saturday, those volunteers serviced veterans' heating systems for free. WORT reporter Jess Miller caught up with some of the participants to hear their stories. This past Saturday, the Madison Area Mechanical and Sheet Metal Contractors Association, or MSC, and the Steamfitters Local 601 hosted their annual Heats On event. Volunteer technicians from nine different contractors spent the day inspecting and servicing heating systems in the homes of 69 local veterans, completely free of charge. Saturday marked the 35th year of the event. Kim Chakos from MSC said there have been some pretty memorable stories in that time. The story was that there was a World War II veteran who had repeatedly been going to the hospital and the doctors actually thought he was trying to commit suicide when it turns out his furnace was leaking carbon monoxide and causing him to have to go to the hospital. So our event found that his furnace was what was causing him to be hospitalized. So we went in, we fixed it, so he was healthy after that, thankfully. And then in 2019, 
we had a veteran homeowner who was living without heat for over two years. His wife had passed away and he just was in the grieving process. And this was through the polar vortex and everything. He had curtain rods hanging in the hallways like to block all the heat in from his space heaters in the living room and was basically living in his living room. And we went to service his house and there was an electrical issue. So we had one of our contractors go out and fix the electrical issue and they fixed the furnace and everything. And it was the first time in two years that he had a warm home. For the technicians, many of them veterans themselves, it means a lot to be able to give back to such an important group in the community. For Dean Julian, the business agent for Steamfitters Local 601. Oh, it means a ton. You know, we're going out, we're helping veterans that need help. And, you know, our veterans don't get enough help. They get overlooked. And this is one way that we can get back. And it means a lot to me. These guys work hard every day, five, six days a week, giving up their morning to go and help. And it's a big event. These guys actually really like to do it. This was the 10th year participating in the event for Scott Zahn, a veteran and a technician from Illingsworth Kilgust Mechanical. Getting in and, and talking to these guys and, and realizing that, you know, they've got a lot to share. They've got a lot, of, a lot to give to us. We were able to ride along with one technician to the home of a veteran, Patty Boyce. This was her third time taking advantage of heats on. They typically return to a home after three years to check up. Boyce, outside her time in the Air Force, has lived in Madison her entire life. And um, I left right after high school. I went to Memorial. Left right after high school and went to Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, uh, San Antonio, Texas. And then I was stationed in Northern Maine at a strategic air command base in Limestone, Maine, a few miles from the Canadian border. And then I went to another strategic air command base down at Carswell in Texas and had a daughter in the meantime. And then I came back to Madison, went to the university, and now I work for the VA hospital. I came to work at the VA six years ago, so it's kind of nice to be able to help other veterans who are in need, and I feel like I'm you know, pretty good at that because I've been through a lot of issues with the military. I, do a lot with our Project Welcome Home Troops group. And, you know, having had a couple of different cancers and things, I'm pretty empathetic with our vets working at the hospital. And, you know. She lives with her dog, Marco, on Madison's east side in a house to match her vibrant personality. I got the east side. <laughs> I totally, I can see that from, from the decor, if nothing else. <laughs> it's just a bunch of, you know, when you're, I'm 65 when you're old and you collect stuff and I traveled a lot and I, well, I like art, and I like color, and color makes me really happy. And I think it's just a, you know, I only, I have less than 600 square feet here. Yeah, it's just a space that makes me really happy. Luckily, there were no major issues with Patty's Furnace this year, but her appreciation was obvious. Kim Chaco summed up the feelings of everyone involved. The opportunity that they have to get a service like this and show their appreciation, and us to show our appreciation to them, it's just, it's magical. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. It's now 6.20 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this month, Madison was in uproar after five people pulled into a Far East Side apartment complex and shot at a group of teenagers. They killed a 14-year-old girl and injured three other children. 
The shooters have yet to be identified, and law enforcement is asking the public for tips leading to an arrest. This is the second shooting this year at Harmony Apartments, and according to the city's website, local police have received more than 1,300 calls for service to the complex since 2020. The website also says, quote, a list of strong recommendations has been sent to the owner. If changes are not made, legal action is possible, unquote. WRT News producer Faye Parks spoke with Alder Derek Field, who represents Harmony Apartments, to learn more. Thank you for joining me, Alder Field. Thank you for having me, Faye. So, as we know, earlier this month, a 14-year-old girl was shot and killed, and three other teens were injured at Harmony Apartments. This is the second shooting at the complex this year. To start off, is there anything you'd like to say to the victims' families or to the residents living at Harmony? Yeah, I certainly hear them, and I'm very focused on future improvements right now with every tool that the city has available. So I just ask that they understand or hear that I'm working on it and that I will be engaging with them pretty soon here to hear directly from them. So have you spoken to any of the families yet, or is that something on the docket for you? I've had an email exchange with one family so far. I haven't spoken in person with any of them yet, and that is going to be the topic of a town hall meeting tomorrow night. This one is being organized by Public Health Violence Prevention Unit partner organizations and myself. A few of us from the city are going to be there, and we're hoping to hear and learn more about what they need to see changed from the culture of the management at the property, the site itself, and the different community supports available. Are there any updates on the case that you can share? Does law enforcement believe the shooting was gang-related? I can't speak to that, no. The latest update that I had heard was pretty consistent with the public statement that MPD put out on October 13th. So as far as I know, MPD is still working on the investigation and asking the community for help. They're looking for tips, and so I also ask that anybody with information that could help the investigation please share that with Crime Stoppers or MPD. The city declared this complex a chronic nuisance in 2020. What precipitated that declaration and what recommendations did the city make? I wasn't around and directly involved in that process because it preceded my time, but I do know that they've been through the abatement process before, that they had enough enforcement actions to qualify for the abatement order under the city's ordinance right now, and that they worked with the city on an abatement plan to stabilize the property. And I think those changes must not have endured or must not have been enough. I know that calls for police service at the property had looked relatively stable over 2022 and coming into 23, but then something must have changed this year. And so we're trying to understand what that is. We're considering abatement again, a nuisance abatement order. We don't currently have the enforcement actions necessary to invoke the local ordinance legally. As far as I know, the property doesn't currently qualify, and I'm working on trying to change the rules about that. I am working with the assistant city attorney who focuses on nuisance abatement cases to change and update our ordinance to better account for violent crime and in particular to treat homicides more severely when considering eligibility for chronic nuisance abatement orders. This is about accountability. And so what are the current requirements that you would be trying to amend? There need to be three enforcement actions related to a chronic nuisance crime at a property over a period of 90 days. And we don't have that right now. Enforcement actions are like an arrest, for example, or a citation. And so that's the criteria that we're not meeting right now, despite the fact that there have been multiple shootings and two people have lost lives this year. That's why I certainly think we need to revisit the criteria and consider homicide as more severe and have a lower threshold of homicides to invoke the chronic nuisance ordinance. 
So you mentioned that the owner, Milwaukee-based Royal Capital Group, did cooperate in 2020 with the city. Are they cooperating now? Is the city council in communication with them? We had a call after the shooting that was on a series of monthly calls that the city has continued with Royal Capital since the nuisance abatement process the last time around. And that call is between MPD and East District Command, the assistant city attorney who I mentioned who works on chronic nuisance cases, and then the alder with Royal Capital representatives and property managers. And so that call occurred on Friday, immediately after the shooting. And at that point, they expressed willingness to work through the city's urgent requests that the assistant city attorney shared with Royal Capital to make improvements at the property that we know would help. So they expressed their willingness to do those and that they are working on it. Since that call, I have not heard if they have any updates further down that list. We are strongly asking them to hire a security firm to improve the security of the parking lot outside including the flow of traffic through the property, because that has been a factor in two of these incidents, at least, to add more cameras and to provide programming, third-party human services and youth engagement programming for the residents there. If the abatement were to be approved and were to go through now, what kind of consequences could Royal Capital face if they don't follow through on these changes that you recommended? So I haven't been through this process myself before, but my understanding is that classifying the property as a chronic nuisance compels them to abate the nuisance and they would need to agree to a nuisance abatement plan. If the nuisance isn't abated after a certain period of time, there's a provision in the ordinance that allows the city to fine Royal Capital some amount of money to offset costs for MPD's presence at the site. And beyond that, I'm not exactly sure where the abatement process goes from there. The property owners certainly have an incentive to stabilize the property and make it a safer place for folks to live, and the surrounding community most definitely wants to see that too. So I've seen as well some local organizations are doing community outreach there in an effort to curb the violence. Can you tell us more about that? One group that I just recently spoke with is Focused Interruption. They are trying to organize residents and learn more about some of the culture of the management there and how that property has and has not been meeting residents' needs in order to figure out what we have to do to meet folks' basic human needs and make conflict less likely and ultimately de-escalate any kind of a situation like this that could lead to future gun violence. So that'll be an ongoing discussion with groups like Focused Interruption. And I wanted to highlight, too, that last night's City Council's Finance Committee met to deliberate on the operating budget, the 2024 operating budget, and they unanimously adopted a budget amendment that I helped sponsor with a couple of other alders who have struggling properties in our districts. And that budget amendment allocates more money for public health violence prevention unit and their teams of contractors that go into these properties and support families and try to support de-escalation services and better understand what the needs are. So exactly some of this work informed with a public health approach so that we can prevent these kinds of tragedies from happening again. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Just that I really appreciate that folks care so much. I've, I've heard from a lot of folks 
who are expressing their remorse and sympathy and support for folks who live at the Harmony and the residents and are really on board so far with a lot of the changes that we're looking at, trying to gather resident feedback and lead to improvements there. That is a process and it's going to take some time and some work for some of these organizations to get in and do community building. And it's going to take the cooperation and trust of the property owners too. We need them on board. So that that's the last thing that I would say here. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Alder Field. Thank you. That was Alder Derek Field, the council member who represents Harmony Apartments on Madison's Far East Side. Madison officials and community organizers are looking for ways to curb ongoing violence at the complex. time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. In recent years, conservatives have set their sights on higher education, arguing that liberal attitudes at campuses across the country suppress more conservative viewpoints. They've pointed at one widely discussed UW free speech survey as evidence, saying it was proof that conservative students don't feel safe sharing their views. Last week, three state Republicans introduced a proposal to protect student journalism and freedom of speech on campus. On this week's edition of Cardinal Call, Hee-Won Lim sat down with the Daily Cardinal state news reporter Ava Menkes to discuss what this bill would mean for student journalists at UW-Madison. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hee-Wan Lim. Now, a proposal authored by three Republican lawmakers would guarantee rights for student journalists in a school-sponsored press, regardless of financial support by their school. Today, we're joined by state news editor Ava Menkes to discuss what this bill might mean for student journalists at UW-Madison. Ava, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're glad to have you. Can you provide an overview of the proposed bill and its key objectives related to student journalism rights and protections? Yeah, so as you said, there were three Republican lawmakers last week who released a proposal that would codify rights and protections for student journalists, as well as create an appeals and review process um, for students to challenge editorial decisions from their school-sponsored newspaper. The bill defines school-sponsored media as any material that is prepared, substantially written, published, or broadcast in any media by a student journalist at an institution under the direction of a media advisor and distributed or generally made available to students enrolled in the institution. Now, this is amid an ongoing battle concerning free speech between higher education officials and Republican lawmakers. How do you envision the passage of this bill influencing the landscape of student journalism and freedom of the press in Wisconsin, and what benefits or challenges might it pose for schools and student journalists? I would say that there have been continual efforts from Republican lawmakers since when I started covering it in May, where they view universities in Wisconsin to be institutes, as our Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has said, institutes of indoctrination. So there have been continual efforts pursued by Republicans to help encourage conservative 
free speech. So there has been a free speech survey that was rolled out in May that was sent to all UW system campuses where students can voice their how they feel. And so I guess the majority of conservative students said that they felt oppressed. So bills like this and the Republican agenda connect to student media because I think they feel that conservative journalists, I guess, face similar oppression and they would like to figure out ways to encourage all sides of journalism to be pursued. What were your or other Cardinal staff members' reactions to this bill? Did it leave the impression that it would protect you as student journalists? I think the initial reaction was positive in the sense that at face value, this is a bill that is going to enshrine protection for student journalists and also codify First Amendment rights. However, when I did do a little bit of a deeper dive into it, we also felt a little ambiguous just because some of the written language, I haven't fully dug into it yet and kind of figuring out still, I mean, how this will truly affect student journalists is still a little bit ambiguous. But I mean, at face value is a very positive reaction, I'd say. The Daily Cardinal is financially and editorially independent of the university. Would this bill impact any of the Cardinal's operations? Uh, No. So it's good to note that this bill will not be impacting the Badger Herald or the Daily Cardinal. We are private companies. Going off of that, what struck me was that while the Cardinal wasn't mentioned, an incident where a conservative student was fired at the Badger Herald, UW-Madison's other student newspaper was mentioned. Yeah, that was really interesting. And that, that was kind of ties into this ambiguous nature of the bill where they brought up a student who was fired for after wanting to publish an op-ed on defunding the police. According to the co-sponsorship memo, he also testified in front of a assembly committee. So that was really interesting. And I'm, again, kind of going to look more into that for a follow-up just because, you know, why was he brought up into this. Badger Hill's a private company, which is why, you know, I did find the overall idea of this bill to be off of the Republican agenda of trying to grapple with free speech across UW system rather than, you know, necessarily putting their full care into what we write about. I think they're more focused on this idea that conservative students, their voices aren't necessarily fully um, supported. And a high school student worked with these Republican lawmakers on this proposal. What have you learned so far about this student? Yeah, so I spoke with Simon Maring. He is the associate editor-in-chief at his high school in Stoughton, um, the North Star. Kind of what I learned from him is he initially read about this bill called the New Voices Bill. This is a national bill. It guarantees that public school students have First Amendment protections, basically. And he told me that he kind of realized that this bill hadn't been pushed in a while. And this really motivated him to revamp legislation in Wisconsin, similar to this new voices bill. So that's when he met with conservative Wisconsin lawmakers. And I think the big takeaway from that, from what he told me, is that it's supposed to prevent school administration, whether that be a superintendent or a principal from K through 12 or in higher ed from, I guess, stopping us or censoring student media, kind of labeled the bill as a way to consolidate the First Amendment into statutory law. And as I said in my article, he told me that it's concrete ideas that they're trying to make a little bit more productive for student journalists. Republican lawmakers are also claiming to protect free speech through this proposal, but have struck down DEI initiatives, which would give platforms to marginalized groups. What, in your opinion, would be concrete step to protecting the rights and freedoms of all student journalists? 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think the best way to provide freedom of speech, and I obviously don't have like the solution pulled out of my pocket, but I think a good step would providing an, an equal amount of event speakers and lecturers to campus and making sure that all students do have an equal voice and that we also bring educated speakers who know what they're talking about to campus. So if we do bring political commentators or politicians, I think it's important to understand that we should just verify everything that they're saying. I also think it's important to recognize that DEI is supposed to help marginalized and unrepresented groups at campus feel protected. And I think, from my understanding, there's been a series of Republican commentaries going to campus. So I think it would be in the best favor of administration to also work on making sure that the marginalized and unrepresented students at our school whether it's first generation or students who are veterans, just making sure that there's all initiatives on all fronts to bring free speech and feel representation for everyone. Ava, thank you so much for sitting down with me this week. Thank you so much for having me. In other campus news, The Wisconsin School of Business Department of Real Estate and Urban Land Economics will launch a new graduate track for housing affordability and sustainability in the fall of 2024. Although the University of Wisconsin-Madison is piloting the affordable housing and sustainable development track this fall with current business students, the 12-credit program will officially debut during the fall 2024 semester. In other campus news, two UW System satellite campuses Fond du Lac and Washington County are set to close in-person classes in June 2024. The move follows the end of in-person classes at UW-Platteville-Richland in July. The campus will also close in June 2024. Non-graduating students at two University of Wisconsin Systems two-year campuses will transfer or shift to virtual learning after UW-Oshkosh, Fond du Lac, and UW-Milwaukee at Washington County and in-person learning in summer 2024. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg celebrates the appearance of the rare Clark's Nutcracker. No, not the ballet or the ubiquitous holiday decoration, but the North American Corvid. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we get to talk about a very rare species in our state called the Clark's Nutcracker. No, we're not talking about the Nutcracker, the dance. We're not talking about anything ballerina-related. It's actually a really cool bird. Clark's Nutcracker is actually a bird that is in the Corvid family, so related to blue jays and crows and ravens. And believe it or not, we have had the first evidence of a Clark's Nutcracker in Dane County, Wisconsin, for the first time ever in history, just in the last few days. It was so amazing. So on Saturday morning, not only do I work in wildlife rehabilitation, obviously, at the Humane Society, but I also work in bird banding. If you don't know, there is a station for bird banding at Picnic Point at part of the UW-Madison Lakeshore Nature Preserve. 
The band's birds typically every Saturday from mid-April to mid-October. So this last weekend was our last banding session of the year, but of course, right in the middle of our session, everyone that was there, volunteers and banders and bird people were starting to get alerts on their phone. There's a lot of different mediums that people use. There's different platforms. Sometimes it's Telegram, sometimes it's Discord, sometimes it's Facebook or eBird Rare Alerts. But an Audubon field trip had found a Clark's Nutcracker at Nine Springs Eway. No way! Coolest thing ever! So Clark's Nutcracker is a bird that I had seen previously when I had visited Colorado. So, you know, middle of our banding session, we're like, oh my gosh, this is rare bird is here. We all have to go see it. So, of course, we closed down a little early. It was a pretty windy day anyways. And we all made our way over to Nine Springs, which is, you know, very close by the Capital Springs area. For those of you who live in Dane County, it's going to be just south of the Monona Walmart, for example. If you've never been there, check it out. It is part of the Madison Metro Sewage District, and so many migrating waterfowl go through that area. It's a really incredible birding spot. Anywho, Clark's Nutcracker is a species that kind of looks like a gray jay. I guess that would be probably the best way to describe it, maybe sort of mockingbird-like. But it's pretty much all gray with some black, some white in the wings. But it's a pretty big bird, you know, robin-ish sized or a little bit larger. And the Clark's Nutcracker is known for feeding on coniferous or pine seeds for the most part. So Nine Springs, if people have been there, it's not really known for pine trees. It's actually pretty open, more grassland, more deciduous trees, definitely some good insect population, but it's not where you would expect a Clark's Nutcracker to be. To tell you how rare this species is, there were only five records in the state of Wisconsin from 1875 being the first time, which was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, up into 1973. So Milwaukee, Vilas County, Oneida County, Rock County, and Manitowoc, five records ever in the state through about 2001 when a report was published. And then the next time was 2018. So there was a gap in anyone observing a Clark's Nutcracker from 1973 until 2018 when they did find another one and mostly in an Oneida County. So the interesting thing is up north, yep, there's a lot of pine trees. These birds are eating off of the cones and able to use that really strong beak, as you can imagine, nutcracker. They grab on to their food uh, with their little talons. I guess you can call them talons because they probably grip quite a bit, but their feet, their toes. And then they use that really strong beak to peck open and crack those seeds open from the, the cones, which is really amazing. I think the coolest thing about Clark's nutcrackers, though, is that similar to a lot of our other corvids, they are incredibly intelligent. Intelligent. They can store up to so, so many seeds. They can actually put anywhere between 30 to 150 seeds underneath their tongue, and there's a pouch in there, which is really amazing. And then they will go and cache those seeds in different places, and they will remember that location to go find them later up to nine months. It usually apparently gets worse after about six months. I would forget where I cached my nuts probably after about that amount of time. Honestly, I'd probably forget after about a week. But they are so intelligent that they can go back and find them. That's similar to like our blue jays, for example, who are known for being a cacher of acorns and other seeds and things. And that's why we have a lot of maple trees and other trees because of the way they cache those nuts and seeds. Anyway, so the Clark's Nutcracker, of course, is usually going to be seen in high elevation areas, but they do move to lower elevation areas in the fall. So, you know, sometimes weather patterns can push birds in weird ways. Maybe that's why we've seen some in Wisconsin. Maybe it's just wandering. Sometimes you get a few birds that just, they have their habitat and maybe it's saturated on the West Coast. Again, these guys are going from everywhere from Seattle, Washington to Colorado down to Los Angeles. 
About 89% of the populations of Clark's Nutcracker are in the United States, 11% in Canada. And that's all according to Cornell University's. If you look up stuff on eBird, you can check out all the records or you can go to allaboutbirds.org just to look at their information. They should really be in areas where there's going to be more pine. Wisconsin's got pine, but that's why they're usually, if anything, found up north. So a little odd that this one's in Dane County, but it was such a cool thing. I went back to see it a second time. So it was there just yesterday. So if anyone goes out to find a bird trip to, you know, want to go look at a Clark's Nutcracker, very likely still at Nine Springs E-Way. Also, I know people have a lot of questions. They usually call about this. As rehabilitators, we're always on the lookout for rare species that seem to have been off path. Sometimes those birds, if they're not in the right habitat, can maybe decline. So we are always concerned about an individual wondering, okay, you know, you're not in your normal habitat. Maybe you got blown off course, just like the flamingos we've had in Wisconsin this year. Can they find enough food? Can they survive? Or are they going to start to decline because they're not getting enough nutrition or the temperatures are too different? It is something that we do rely on the birding community to help us with. So if for some reason that animal does appear to start behaviorally looking abnormal, you know, they're depressed or they look sick for some reason, or you're able to approach that animal. And if you could get close enough that you could pick it up and put it in a box, that's when we typically say something is wrong. If it can still avoid people and it can evade predation, then we're going to say, hey, let that bird be. Let's see if it can figure out where it wants to go on its own. Doesn't mean we don't get vagrants, doesn't mean they don't survive, but we are on the lookout for those animals in case rehabilitation and intervention is necessary. So that being said, if you do find an animal or if this nutcracker for any reason decides that it's not doing so well and it does decline but stays here, definitely give us a call at the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. Our phone number is 608-287-3235. So thanks for listening today. Hope you all get the chance, if you do, to see the Clark's Nutcracker. So happy birding this week and be on the lookout for more birds. Give us a call if you have any questions. And thanks for listening to our segment here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. Last week, the Association of Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin held its 95th anniversary parade at the Wisconsin Capitol. Dozens of utility trucks and hundreds of line workers came to Capitol Square to educate and lobby state legislators on behalf of municipally owned electric utilities. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke to Tim Heinrich, the president and CEO of MEUW, to, to learn more. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. So uh, tell us, how did this sort of idea of electric utility as part of city government, how did this come about? And if we're talking 95 or 100 years ago, that must have been right at the beginning of sort of electrification of uh, large parts of the state. Is that right? That's absolutely right. In fact, our organization has been around for 95 years, but public power in the state of Wisconsin actually dates back to the late 1890s. And it's all about a, a model in which you had largely investor-owned utilities that were operating in some of the larger cities across the state at a time when the rural parts of the state were developing and faced with the opportunity to wait or develop their own electricity. Some of the folks at that time decided that it was necessary to form their own electric utility. So in fact, the, the very first electric utility that was community owned in the state of Wisconsin dates back to 1890 and New Richmond, Wisconsin, which is in the western part of the state. And that's where things got started. And so eventually more and more communities decided that they wanted to have their own electric utility and the model was born. Was that model unique to Wisconsin or was that happening elsewhere in the Midwest? 
It was happening elsewhere, though, as you imagine, it was moving east to west. And so, you know, things on the east coast were developing and, you know, more and more rural parts of the country were uh, needing electricity and wanted to benefit from it. So the enterprising folks of the time decided to take it in their own hands and develop their own utility. And in more rural parts of the state, we have electric cooperatives, which are sort of a similar model. But what what was it about city government that was poised at that time in history to take advantage of the electrification efforts? I think it was really just about the idea that, you know, you had government as an opportunity to be able to, you know, really foster that and put the resources behind it. In many parts of the state, these were hydroelectric facilities. So, you know, the roots of community ownership go back, are tied to renewable energy, very much like we talk about today. And it really went back to the idea that these folks wanted to make sure that they could take full advantage of the electrification that was happening. So what's changed over the last century or more in terms of municipal electric utilities? How have they managed to keep pace with all of the technological changes and demands that are placed on these types of systems? One of the things is that municipal utilities, because they have such a small footprint, they do have an opportunity to sort of test things out and and try things that are new. And really, it's that whole idea that the local ownership and the ability to really think about and decide what should happen in that community is a big hallmark of municipally owned utilities. We're not part of a large corporate structure we're owned locally, we're operated locally. Our boards of directors or commissions in many cases are the local residents. And so it's it's all very, very local. And that helps to make sure that reliability is strong, rates are low, and the service is strong. Are we seeing uh, municipal utilities getting into renewable energy things like solar power or things like that in this modern era? Definitely. In fact, in some parts of the state, uh, we have municipal utilities that are participating in community solar programs where they will work with a developer to develop a, a large community solar garden and then allow their customers to tap into that. And so it's, it's a great model to expand renewable energy. And, you know, it's not only on the, on the solar side, but many of our municipal utilities are also purchasing power through arrangements from wind farms as well. So definitely municipal utilities are embracing the, the renewable energy and trying to make sure that things remain climate neutral. So tell us about the lobby day and parade that you held on October 19th. Who showed up for that and what was your objective? So our objective overall was simply to raise awareness of public power. Not surprisingly, a lot of folks, you know, they flip a switch and electricity is there for them. They don't really give a second thought to where it comes from or who's providing it. But we believe it's important that our customers and particularly our legislators understand that there are alternatives to the large investor-owned utilities and that the municipal utilities, while they're small, they do demand a voice at the Capitol and demand to have their areas of concern addressed and considered when legislation is taking place. And so this was really all about raising awareness, building awareness of municipal utilities and the benefits of public power, that local ownership, that not-for-profit status, and the overall exceptionally reliable record of, of energy delivery that we have. I understand you took some legislators up and some cherry pickers on the Capitol Square. That is correct. Um, it was uh, a very popular offering. In fact, we provided probably 35 or 40 bucket lifts during the day. And it was just a great opportunity for the legislators to jump into a, uh, with the correct safety harnesses, of course, but jump into a, a bucket lift and get that lift up and 
take a great view of the Capitol and, and Lake Monona and just really have an opportunity to experience what it's like to be a lineman and, and have that whole experience. So what are the specific issues that are in front of the Wisconsin legislature that you are hoping they'll keep the municipal electric utilities in mind about? Are there particular pieces of legislation pending right now that the MEUW has an interest in? There's nothing particular right now. And in fact, that was one of the things that was nice about our events is that we, we're not actively lobbying any specific issue right now. This was really, a, again, about a raising awareness. But, you know, there's all, all sorts of energy policy issues that are continually being bantered about in the, in the Capitol. Things like community solar legislation, electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging stations, those types of issues. And so it's just good for us to have been able to kind of provide the perspective and, and build awareness of the fact that it's not just the large investor-owned utilities that have an interest in this. There are actually 81 municipal utilities across the state that have thoughts on this issue and whose customers need to be represented in those discussions. How does a municipal electric utility interact with the state public service commission? Are you subject to their regulation or... We have been since the very beginning, and it's one of those things that when we have the right to serve, there, there comes with that some regulation. And so the Public Service Commission does have direct oversight of the municipal electric utilities, and we want to adjust rates or build anything in our communities. They do have say in, in how that is facilitated. So what do you see as the biggest challenges facing municipal electric utilities in the years to come? I think the biggest challenge for us is just, again, to raise the awareness. It's one of those circumstances where it's a more than 100-year-old model, but most folks, again, don't recognize that it exists, and so we need to continue to remind folks of that. We've been speaking with Tim Heinrich of the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Jess Miller was your reporter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, Hewan Lim, and Brian Standing of the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shawi Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Chopadio. Good night.